Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Rob. How important is empathy? Oh my God, this is so funny. How important is empathy from an essay in order to heart reconcile the relationship? My essay husband in recovery for a year now still cannot um, move into an empathetic role when I'm in pain. He acknowledges his bad behavior roles when I am in pain. He, oh, he acknowledges his bad behavior and owns all his responsibility and feels guilty over our current situation. However, when I am hurting, he appears to be stuck and unmoved. I feel like a circus freak being stared at by my husband who stares at the floor or out into space, but never sheds a tear or gets choked up or expresses any heartfelt sentiment that helps me feel like we're in this together. So thank you for sharing that, that, and you're not a circus freak. So I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, like, like that's a real image when you're sharing, I feel like this, that's a real image. And I'm really sorry that that's, you know, um, how his behavior, you know, um, you're feeling as a result of his behavior. So, well, I, I, I think, you know, sorry, Tim, I want to get a pen. I think there's a lot of questions within this question, lots of things to talk about. But um, the first thing, thing that struck me is that this is someone, this person who wrote in, who has a lot of emotional needs that are not being met by her recovering husband. Husband, uh huh. And, and I think just like you said, this you're not a circus freak. You're just a needful person, which is what we all are. And you have some pretty large needs right now because of what's happening over the last year. But he can't meet them. And so you can look to him and say, you know, I wish I don't understand why he can't do this. Where is his empathy? I mean, we are broken people as addicts. So just getting us to stop our behavior is a pretty far down the road. Believe me, empathy is what we call a late stage acquisition. It's going to take me. And I think in treatment, you do learn that in a different way because it's thrown in your face. But um, I think empathy, empathy is a late stage um uh, learning process. And we, Tammy and I talk about this all the time when you spouses write, write in and say, you know, my husband or wife is sober, but they're still a, a narcissist. And, you know, I often say it, it takes work and diligence to get sober and not that long if you really work at it, but learning to be a better person is a lifetime of work and growth. Um, so Two, a few things. I hope that you get those needs met by people who are, are able to respond to you. That's why we encourage partners groups and therapy and, you know, so that you can find the places where people will feel moved and engaged as they should. But, you know, we're broken. And part of where we're broken is uh, when when other people experience strong emotions, what we experience is a desire to act out to drink, to use, to go have sex. We are not used to sitting in our own feelings, no less sitting with someone we care about. You know, I'm sure in the past, when strong feelings and issues came up between the two of you, he was out the door at some point acting out. One has to, and excuse the way I'm saying it, but his reality, he has to stand there and he has to listen and he has to not fight back and he has to take it. And, you know, your husband has a history of issues or he wouldn't be where he is now. Um, I'll give you an example in some small way. Um, 
uh, not that long ago, we had someone working with us at the treatment center and I came in just, you know, ready to ready for a fight. And I jumped in on this person about what they were doing wrong and what they were doing right and what they could. They just shut down. And what they couldn't tell me was they really liked what I had to say, but their personal way of responding to someone being direct was to look down, to disappear. Some people I work with really need that wake up. Some people need to be treated in a much more loving and nurturing way. We will get there eventually. So I would say that it's not that he doesn't feel it. I'm sure he can see what's happening in front of him. But my guess is he's stuck. He doesn't quite know what to do. The feelings have not been accessible for a long time. And so he's not really sure what to do with them. I mean, this isn't a guy who walks away. This isn't a guy who blames you or tells you that you shouldn't be so upset because he only, this is a guy who's really standing there. So I guess what I want to say is I'm not sitting in your chair, but what I see is something that I would want to validate, which is I'm so glad today, even though we're not where I want where we want to be, that you can stop, you can listen, you can understand what I'm going through. You acknowledge the pain we've been through. I mean, that is a long way from a year and a half ago. So your needs may not be fully met now. He may not be able to meet them, but I would try to do what you can since you're out of the crisis stage to value what is available and to talk about what you need more of. Um, that's my it, response. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important. We've talked about this before too, to have a set time to talk about when it's not in the situation. So, so for you to be able to go, I feel like a circus freak when this happens. And, you know, instead of looking at the floor, could you just look me in the eyes? And even if you're just nodding your head, that's going to, you know, like that may be enough to, you know, to feel like, you know, and, and for him, he, you know, working on that guilt and that shame, because that's what I hear is, oh, I'm going to my shame place. And, oh, I feel so horrible about this. And then he, then it's harder because he's going to get stuck in his like, oh, I feel so bad rather than being able to be fully present. So, you know, and it may be that when you're having one of those strong reactions, you know, he needs to listen and then you guys need to take a 20 minute break and then you need to come back. And I mean, there's so many tips and tricks to how to move forward, um, you know, for each of you, because this is new space for both of you to navigate um, uh, your needs, you know, absolutely are there. His being able to stand in the uncomfortable is completely different. I agree with Dr. Rob. It's like, you know, that was like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm going to go numb out, you know, uh, escape be gone and you know so for him to be able to stand there, but also not as fruitful for him to be stuck in a I'm in a, you know, guilt or shame spiral. And so I'm just associated. Yeah, 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 that's true. Which is what numbing out and escape does, you know, in addiction. So, so I think there's hope for you to move forward. No, I was just saying, I hope, I think there's hope if you're not working with a professional, this might be a really good opportunity for the two of you to take this to a couple's therapist and help navigate this next, you know, uh, step. So what were you going to add? Um, I was just going to say that um, I'm going to drop in a little therapy idea because, you know, I can't help that sometimes. And I wonder if you could tolerate it if when you're tearful and you're upset and you're having a hard time and he's looking around and he looks uncomfortable, could you move toward him? Could you, could you lean on his shoulder? Could you hold his hand? Like, like Tammy said, and, and I would say maybe look in the eyes is more than he can handle. Maybe he doesn't know how to move towards you. Maybe he learned that when someone's upset, he needs to be quiet. I mean, I don't know how he learned this, but I think if you broke the ice a little bit, you know, he, you know, he doesn't have to say anything. 
He doesn't have to do anything. You don't have to discuss it. It You can just move toward him. And whereas your my response, since I wasn't seeing a response, would want to be something like, well, how come they don't care about me? And I would back up. I think if you move toward him, you might open a door that you don't expect. So, and that'll be 50 cents. <laughs> well, I was thinking, and if, you know, like there are times when I don't need my husband to fix everything. I just need a hug. And like, I need to not be like in the problem at the moment and, and the, the physical, con- and I'm not saying this with a betrayed partner, like this is completely, you know, up to you and what you need. And I think it's again, when it's not in the moment, how, when the next time this happens, cause it will, but when we're coming into this space, what is it you need? Is it okay for him to ask? Is there something I can do? Can I touch your hand? I mean, like whatever is going to be useful, but it also gives you an opportunity to, to think about what will be useful to you in that moment, you know, like, what do you really need? You know, and it may be, I need to go for a walk, you know, I need to go for a walk and be away and then I'll come back and I'll be able to be clearer about what I'm really thinking. So, so the next question is, I don't know if you can see it because you've logged out. I am a male addict in recovery just over a year. What are some trust building exercises that my partner and I can do to participate in to rebuild trust relationally and non-relationally? Well, I'm trying to think of answers that are outside the box because, you know, number one is I think whether you have a male partner or a female partner, something like out of the doghouse will give you a sense of what they've been through and how to show empathy. And I think that's the hard part is we tend to want to um, defend ourselves or be forgiven or, you know, trying to try to find a way to um, show that that we are we are deserving of it. We're doing a really good. It's all about us, basically, and we don't necessarily how to understand what you are going through. I'll give an example. It's very typical for me to work with men who will say, who will cry, and they will say, "Oh my God, I I, I can't believe I did this to my spouse because what does it mean? Who does it uh, who does it make me? And who would ever want to be me? And you know, I've ruined so many things that were important to me. And she'll never look at me in the same way again. And I will stop them and I say, there's a problem with all this. It's all about you. I, you know, it is you feeling bad about you and the things that you have done. And that's kind of not helpful. What empathy looks like is I can't imagine what he or she has been through. I can't imagine how this is affecting them. And that's empathy. So from the, the folks I work with, it's a long way to empathy. But, you know, what Tammy's talking about, committing to taking the time to talk every night, no matter how busy things are, you know, splitting up the time, making sure you each feel heard. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, and by the way, empathy is both practiced and learned. Um, it isn't, uh, some people who innately have it, it's destroyed by our upbringing. So um, it takes a while. And I'll, actually, can I explain this, Tammy? Mm-hmm. Um, why we lack empathy? Because no one showed us any. Um, my story on this is I worked with a man who um, was hitting his children and I was in a supervision group as a therapist and I said, I don't understand. He's my client and I know he was beaten as a child. If you were beaten as a child, how could you ever do that to your kids? And he said, well, you know, and the client would say, well, you know, uh, I was bad and I got hit and when they're bad, they need to be hit. But the point is, is the reason that he was able to hit his children is he never really had empathy 
for what he had gone through as a child. He never said to himself, I wish dad had been kind to me. I wish dad had been sweet to me. I wish, or I can't believe I was abused. How sad. I was just looking for help. He hasn't, he still sees it as I deserve that. And when you're in that place, there's no empathy for the children. You're just doing what you learned. So for him or her to really, so for a partner to receive empathy, we really have to go to the place of understanding and learning about it inside of ourselves. No one showed me any empathy. They, I was used, abused, you know, you name it. It isn't hard. It is hard for me to be empathic because I, it doesn't occur to me. I don't remember it. So anyway, that's a whole bunch of stuff. Tammy, let me hand it to you before I say anything more. No, but and trust is rebuilt over time. You showing up, it's actions. It's, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. You know, if you say you're not going to do something, you don't do it. So, you know, it really is showing up, you know, consistently. And it isn't just about the sexual acting out. It, it's about everything. If you, you know, if you say you're, you know, you're going to, we use this a lot. If you say you're going to take out the trash, you take out the trash. You know, if you say right. you're going to be home at five o'clock, you're home at five o'clock. I mean, it's, it's, you know, showing that consistency. That's how you, you build trust is, you know, do what you say and say what you do. I mean, it's, you know, it's telling the truth. So it our, doesn't our sound clip. like empathy, Yeah, but, but um, when I know you're busy and you're going to be late coming home, I might make something to eat. I might do the laundry. I might, it, that is empathy. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything particular. It's like, oh, I thought ahead to how you might be feeling when you come home. And so I am doing something because I can have a sense of what you're going through. That's empathy. So it doesn't have to be we're looking at each other and we're going through the past. It can be simply, and it is simply thinking about what someone else might be going through and trying to in some way alleviate it, help them, even though, and they don't have to tell you. You know, your spouse comes home and God, another day and it was terrible. And then there's a laundry and there's a cooking in there. They don't have to call you and say, would you do it? You have empathically realized what they are going through and done something at your end. So, you know, it can be small things that earn your way to much larger ways of uh, showing empathy. I'm going to use a real quick example. Right before this, the dogs tipped over a plant. I hardly have any real plants because I'm, I have a really brown thumb. You're had, plant impaired. I am. I, 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 I didn't get that gene, but Anyway, my husband, bless his heart, said, you go, I got this, trust me. And I went, okay. And that was huge because otherwise after this, I'd have to go out and it's all over the carpet. It's all over. I mean, it's a mess, you know? And I was like, I have to just trust that he's got this. And that to me is, is, is empathy because he's understanding how busy I am. And he's, you know, he's cleaning up a huge mess. So thank you dogs for killing my plant. Oh, well, okay. Next question. Is it common sure, blame for someone else? <laughs> they, they were rambling around in the house, which they know is naughty. So is it common that an essay initially admits to being an essay and then suddenly retracts and claims that they aren't? Is this a typical cycle of denial acceptance? So I hear this flip. actually a lot. So please, yeah, I'd I'm well, I'm to gonna, You know what? I'm going to do a tricky thing with you, Tammy. I'm going to say... Okay. Is it common that an alcoholic initially admits to having an alcohol problem and then suddenly retracts and said they don't have an alcohol problem? Is this typical of the cycle of kind of contemplating and not con trying to figure out a problem or is this just plain lying or what is that? 
I think it's unfortunately typical because we often talk about there's a window and, you know, when people are calling and looking for help, you know, like I understand that I have a window of time for them to take some action because otherwise they're going to go into denial. They're going to justify. They're going to go, oh, it really wasn't. Well, it's crisis. It's crisis driven. So the crisis is over. I don't need to do that. Yeah. Or they've checked it. This one is classic. I've gone to some S meetings, whichever form, you know, they did six months and oh, I'm not really one of them. I'm, you know, so it's, I'm distanced from that, you know, and I, and a lot of it is, I just don't want to have to deal with, you know, the work that it's going to take to change. So it's sad, but go ahead. I I also want to add that, um, that we tend to lie. (laughs) And so it may well be that this well, to ourselves for sure, but it may well be that this person thought they were going to be caught or thought that you might find out something or got, or maybe you did. And, you know, it, then they can say, well, I know what the problem is. It's this and I'm going to work on it. And but that's just a way to keep doing what they want to keep doing. So because if someone says they have this problem, uh, they understand it's destroyed their life. So, yeah, to me, this is someone who said something in a moment of shame or fear of getting caught. And then a day or two later, they thought, oh, my God, what did I do? And I got to run. And I really have a problem anyway. It's just that I did a few of these things. And you're right. They move right back into denial until the next crisis. Um, yeah. Or they blame the partner, it's like your fault that whatever. And, you know, that happens unfortunately often too. So, Hey, can I say something all the spouses about that? I've had Please. a number of people in, you know, I do consultations and I've had a number of couples where the, the, the person who'd been cheated on was saying things like, um, I'm sorry, the person who'd done the cheating was saying things like, I don't understand how you can go through my phone logs or how come you're looking at, you know, at my Facebook or, you know, these things are private or you're going through my desk. And what they don't realize, and I say this to all you spouses, spouses, is that when you break trust, all bets are off. You know, we were equal and I, before you found out of all this and I was able to have my private world as I deserve and you had yours. But once I break through that private world and I tell you that there are things going on there that will hurt you and you don't know about it, then all bets are off. And if I love you and I want to restore the relationship, I'll let you look at whatever you want and I won't complain about it because I realize how it will make you feel better and how it will make you feel safe and not worry about about how you're going to think of me. So anyway, I just hear that a lot. Like, should I look? Can I look? And then, of course, the addicts are like, you shouldn't look. And why is that? Why are they looking? And you have every right to look. Um, So the next question, do all sex addicts typically have some type of childhood trauma that impacted them? Or do some of them simply have a sense of entitlement to act out? Yes and yes. Um, And they're related you know, um, in some ways. I mean, uh, I am my mother's child and my mother was pretty darn narcissistic. And I think in part, I learned ways of acting in the world and ways of being connected to other people that was really very focused on me and still is. Um, But my mother was mentally ill. Uh, You know, my grandmother was mentally ill. I mean, I have seen a lot of, and people would beat each other up and scream and lock me in my room. And, you know, I have that whole story. So, you know, is it nature? Is it nurture? 
Is it who the person is versus things that happen to them? Um, do we get entitled, entitled as narcissistic people who are wounded? I mean, the answer to all of that is yes. And it even brings us back to the earlier question, which is how come they don't have empathy? How come they're not kinder? How come they're still a jerk, even though they've stopped acting out? And that's because the remnants of trauma in terms of how we learn to relate and protect ourselves. And, you know, um, some of that looks like entitlement, some that looks like looking down on the floor and not knowing what to say. There are a lot of ways that we protect ourselves um, because we never learned how to simply respond and be supportive and have our own tears. So, you know, let me, I want to say one more thing. I, uh, I lost a friend, Tammy knows this to cancer about, I guess about a month, a month and a half ago. And when I heard how sick he was, um, I had two experiences. I talked to a good friend of ours. We both knew this man. And as I was talking to her, I thought, why am I sad? Why aren't I more sad? Why aren't I crying? Why aren't I upset about this? And then the minute we hung up the phone, I was on the floor crying. And what I want to tell you about that experience is that even though I was incredibly sad and I was so sad that the dog came over and licked my face and sat in my lap. And I don't have that kind of dog. But when it was all over and I was, you know, talking, having some happiness to eat later, I thought, I am so glad to be alive. And what I mean by that is my sobriety allows me to deeply feel things that are at the right time in the right way. And then I can come out of it and be okay. I don't get depressed. I'm not anxious. And this ability to actually tolerate, have, engage my feelings. I mean, I don't mean to I'm not trying to brag, but that feels like recovery to me more than who I had sex with. I can be sad. I can be happy. I can grieve. I can, and I can do it all in the same day. And what I did with all those feelings in the past was act out. So um, anyway, I'm not sure if I answered the question, but, um, but yes, yes. And yes. And when people call, you know, I talk about you know, trauma, abandonment, neglect, grief, loss. Glad. There's some sort of wound um, that, you know, and like Dr. Rob said, you know, there's some something missing that, that the kiddos didn't get, you know, and so then figure out how to dissociate. And, and I've said this before, too. It's like sometimes the addiction kind of saves your life, you know, like the world was not a safe place. Safe. So you find mm -hmm. this place to go, you know, that dissociates. And then of course, addiction is a great mechanism for dissociating. So, so, but now it's turned on you and it's no longer, you know, right. a, a helpful coping mechanism. Right. It's, you know, ruining, you know, your ability to be connected. So, so in recovery, we learn how to do that and to have big feelings, but, but to know that that's just part of being, in a meaningful Alive. relation with somebody. Yeah. I mean, how much better is that than not giving a right. rip, you know? So, right. and just me, 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 me. So, and I got to say, I used to pride myself as many addicts do. And I bet you did too, that I could end a relationship and not think about somebody ever again, or I could just walk away. You know, I felt proud of that, not realizing that, you know, that was, they were in my time. past. In the past, I felt proud of it. I thought, no, oh, but I they're in my past. I don't need to think about them again. Right. And yeah, I don't absolutely. have any feelings about them at all. I can just move on. And now I'm deeply connected to people. And that means I'm alive. So mm -hmm. this is what addiction recovery looks like a couple, well, hopefully a couple of years down the road, when you really are looking for connection, when you really can tolerate what's going on inside of you. Um, and by the way, and when I was sad worth that the night, journey. Go ahead. No, I called a friend. My spouse wasn't home yet. And I called and I said, you know, I was really sad and that was really hard. I didn't have to sit there by myself. And the dog was great. 
I mean, Tammy, my dogs, you know, I have a 95 pound dog and he turned around and he sat in my lap and he faced out like anybody who messes with him. I'm going to go. I mean, he was protecting me and that made me cry more. Mm -hmm. Anyway, more questions. Okay. With sex addiction, are there withdrawal symptoms and how long do they typically last? Going through that now, about 10 days from one of my main acting out behaviors in therapy and 12 step two. Well, um, I think that every behavior or substance that hyperstimulates your brain in some way that over and over again, you you use it to numb pain, to disappear, to uh, feel intense or feel anything, that when you are dosing your brain with that experience over and over again, and it could be gambling, it could be eating, it could be uh, um, you know spending, um, once you stop rewarding yourself, and uh, you know, uh, improving how you're feeling, doing that, you're not going to feel so good. And this is true for any uh, any substance. What withdrawal doesn't have to be with heroin, like I'm sweating and having seizures, and you know all of that. Withdrawal is can also be psychological, which is I'm so used to when I have a bad day turning to this, that that's just what I do. It may not be the drug that leaves me doing it, it's psychological. So anyway, um, I can tell you what withdrawal symptoms are from sex addiction and porn addiction as I typically hear them. Is there research? I doubt it. But I'm going to tell you what I hear about is a sense of longing, a sense of loneliness, a sense of not connectedness. And, and if you think about that, you know, addiction is all about um, feeling connected, even when you're not, you know, when I go see a sex worker, when I go to a strip club, it makes me feel connected or I'm drinking around. I feel like I'm the life of the party, but actually I'm very alone. And when you stop acting out, I think you really begin to feel that aloneness. And by the way, that is a great thing because feeling that aloneness, if you're working on yourself, drives you to what heals us, which is connecting with other people. We don't know that when we're so busy acting out how much we do long for all kinds of connections. So, you know, my experience is people get depressed, they get feel withdrawn, they they feel lonely um uh that kind of thing uh tammy do you hear about this you used to do so much training well you know i I do hear about this and and interestingly dr rob the one of the top searches on our website is porn withdrawal so Mm -hmm. so people are experiencing those physical like like you're talking about they're uh, experiencing physical reactions to the withdrawal so so it's real um, how long it takes the, I'm going to give you this the more active you are in recovery the less you'll feel them because you're going to be connected with uh, we've got drop-in groups for guys and I don't know if it's a guy or a gal but so um, we've got we've got drop-in groups we've got the webinar I'm glad you're here but the more connections you start making that will take the edge off of it, you know, quicker. But at some point, yeah, it's, you know, like, what can you do in this moment? And sometimes it's just going to feel uncomfortable and it's going to be okay. You can, you can get through that discomfort. So Tammy, you're going to hate this because it would not be your style at all. But one of my sponsors who was really troubled said, um, I got through sobriety by watching movies and I would watch eight to 10 movies, you know, a week or whatever it is. And just because if she went outside or she interacted with others during her free time, she was going to act out and she couldn't tolerate what she was feeling yet. And I'm not suggesting this, but I, she, and she said to me, I don't care how I got there. I got there. And then I was able to grow and move on. And, you know, related to this is um, I think Tammy is, you know, what I ask you to do is take out the word 
um, withdrawal and put in the word depressed. And think about if you had a friend who was feeling depressed, not like they need to go to a hospital or something, but they really were just feeling down for a while. What would you tell them to do? You know, you probably tell them to get out there and exercise a little bit. You probably tell them to be more social. You probably tell them, you know, here's a funny thing I saw on TV or let's spend more time together or because it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's anxiety or depression or withdrawal. We all basically need the same things. You know, we need comfort. We need to move our bodies. We need other things to distract us. And we need self-care. You know, this might be a time to, well, I won't say get a massage to our people, but um Anyway, going I'll for a walk is good. That. Like you talked, you started like well, going for a walk is a great right. idea. Yes. Except for unless you're I did. I'm in better everybody. So yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.